families in some cases to follow this man into a desert just to be with him, just to hear more from him, right? This is, this is part of what's been happening. This is part of the response to Jesus' grand entry into the world stage. Roman authorities in the region have been awed. The, education, the educated have been baffled, and some religious leaders defend him, like Nicodemus. We'll talk about him a little bit later, while many are hell-bent on discrediting Jesus, right? And so, interestingly, Jesus himself, in the middle of all this questioning, in the middle of all this dispute, in the middle of all of this, who is this guy? Remember, who is Jesus? That's the question. In the middle of all this, he has encouraged ambiguity surrounding his identity, which is interesting, right? He's encouraged ambiguity. Many times in Mark, he warns those who witness his power or who receive his healing, who receive his grace, he warns them, tell no one of what you have seen right? Tell no one of what you have seen. Even recently in the story where Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, right? You know, he asked Peter and the disciples, who do, who do people say that I am? Oh, some say Elijah, some say this. Who do you say that I am? You're the Messiah. Oh, ding, ding, ding. Tell nobody. What? What? Right? It's a little interesting. It's a little interesting. Even Jesus has created ambiguity about himself until now. Responses have been mixed. And with mixed messaging and mixed responses and just everything taking place on the stage of Israel, tension in the story and the gospel has been building and building with more and more people being pulled in and polarized by the question, who is Jesus? People are on different sides of this, right? People are being pulled in and polarized by the question, who is Jesus? And at this point in his ministry, things have been happening for a few years now, and at this point in his ministry, people are flocking from all over Israel to follow him, and his following and influence have become politically significant. They've become politically significant, and so it's catching the attention of people who who are in charge, and it's creating anxiety for people who are in charge, both Roman and Jewish authorities secular and religious leaders, the former because they don't want a rebellion, the Romans don't want an insurrection from some guy that they don't know, and the latter because as Jesus' influences, the religious folks that is, as Jesus' influence waxes, as it gets bigger, there's wanes, right? And so they feel threatened by Jesus. Just a few verses later in, in this chapter of Mark, it even says, Mark verse 18, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this, Jesus' teaching, and they began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. They feared him because he's got clout. He's got people following him. That threatens them. Now, compounding this anxiety, we're still building here, compounding this anxiety felt by government and religious officials is the reality that most of the people in Israel at this time expect that when their Messiah comes to deliver them, he will come as a conquering warrior who will overthrow their Roman oppressors and restore David's and God's kingdom by force. And here's this guy preaching in the desert with a growing following of people wondering if he is the Messiah, right? Politically significant. People are thinking, is this the guy? Is he going to conquer Rome? And if that was not enough, if the plot was not thick enough yet, if the anxiety was not heightened, if the tension was not there in the story against this entire backdrop, of prophecy, miracles, politics, jealousy, power, amid this electrified atmosphere of anticipation and expectation and fear, we find ourselves in the opening of our passage at the beginning of the Passover holiday. 
a festival drawing Jews from all over the region to come to Jerusalem and collectively recall and retell the story of God's miraculous deliverance of his people from an oppressive ruling authority. And every year as they engage in this retelling of this story of God delivering them from Egypt miraculously, wondrously, as they tell this story, they hope for a future deliverance, as we do. I mean, think about it. We look at Easter and we look to the future. They're looking at Passover and they're looking to the future, a future deliverance. Hopes are running high every year. And because of that, every year, Roman governors would call in extra troops and authorities uh, to, to um, control the crowds. They had extra troops on hand. They didn't want a rebellion. The riot police are here. The Romans are wary. Religious leaders are scheming. Average folks are hoping Jesus is the answer to their problems. Lines are being drawn, political moves planned, and the whole region is converging on one point, Jerusalem, to celebrate Passover. And it is amidst this very charged backdrop, this very charged backdrop, that we enter our story and pick up this text this morning. In verse 1, and, and uh, yeah, read with me, verse 1. When Jesus and his followers approached Jerusalem... They came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Um, so Mark, in, in, as, as he tells stories, as he sets aside sections in his narrative, he tends to open with topographical information, like here's the scene, okay? And, and so he's opening this scene in the, with Jesus' entry into Jerusalem by just giving us a layout. On the one hand, you've got Jerusalem, and on the other hand, I'm going to do it reverse, so, you, so it's you, right for you guys. You've got Jerusalem, and then you've got the Mount of Olives over here. And between them, they're just two, two uh, hilltops right next to each other. And between them is the Kidron Valley, um, kind of steep. Maybe famously, you've heard it called Gehenna, right? This was where the image of burning trash and judgment for non-believers when Jesus is being that comes from. That's the Kidron Valley. I've actually walked up it in the snow. I, got, I lived uh, outside of Jerusalem for a couple years and it was miserable. It's not, it's not a nice valley. I don't, it's very steep, very rocky. Um, <laughs> I had to. It was very cold, too. Um, and so, anyway, so Mark, Mark sets up the scene with this. We've got, we've got Jerusalem, we've got the Mount of Olives, and then we've got two towns that he mentions, Bethphage and Bethany. So, uh, Jesus and crew are coming up from Jericho, which is down by the Dead Sea. They're coming up the hill country to Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives is kind of the last stop if you're coming from the east, you guys, the east. If you're coming from the east, um, you go up the hills, and then you hit the Mount of Olives, and then there's two towns that you pass by on your way into Jerusalem. First, you hit Bethany on the south slope, then you go up and around. There's Bethphage across the valley into the eastern gate of Jerusalem. And so, essentially, Jesus and crew have reached the last pit stop before our final destination, which is Jerusalem, coming up from Jericho. He's been teaching, he's been doing miracles, he's been doing all sorts of good stuff. And now, again, amidst this very charged atmosphere, amidst this very politically charged atmosphere, here we see Jesus coming up um, and, and, and hitting this last pit stop before, uh, before getting to Jerusalem. And at this last pit stop, you know, at the gas station, so to speak, uh, Jesus had some preparations to make for his arrival. It's time to stop and set the stage, in other words, in the story. Continuing in verse 1, Jesus gave two disciples a task, saying to them, go into the village over there, probably Bethany, that's the first one. Um, and as soon as you enter it, you'll find tied up there a colt that no one has ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, its master needs it, and he will send it back right away. 
Okay, so what's going on in this section? Why, why the stop to make preparations? What is Jesus doing exactly? Mark very intentionally, both through content and even word position in this passage, which we won't dive into for sake of time, um, he packs the passage. He packs this passage. It's very short, right? Ten, 11 short verses. But he packs the passage with verbiage and symbolism demonstrating Jesus' messiahship, his divine sonship, and his prestige. Ultimately, you know, lots of buzzwords, his worthiness, right? Uh, he, he demonstrates his worthiness. And we're going to go through a couple of, uh, and we're going to go through those, uh, those examples. First, he says, untie a colt and bring it here. Now, why, coming into Jerusalem, would Jesus ride a colt in uh, into the city? And the answer is there's a clear reference uh, to a passage that other gospel writers include from Zechariah 9.9, and it reads this way. Uh, Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Verse 10, and your king will bring peace to the nations. His realm will stretch from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. And so Jesus requisitions a ride at this pit stop in Bethany, specifically a young colt in fulfillment of this passage in Zechariah. And he does so to send a very loud and a very clear sin- signal. Remember the ambiguity about who he is. We've talk- we talked about it up at the beginning. He-, he does this. He gets this colt to send a very loud and very clear signal. Your king is coming to you. Your king is coming to you. I mentioned earlier, Matthew, Luke, and John all quote this passage from Zechariah directly in their retelling of this story. They all mention it. This was in fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. Just so that we don't miss the implication here, Jesus is invoking this passage and its imagery of kingly conquest directly. During Passover, amidst the politics, amidst the unrest, Jesus begins to make a statement. What's happening to the ambiguity? It's going away. And then he specifies a donkey that no, or a, a colt that no one has ridden. Why would this matter? Um, it's it's funny to think about because I think for any of us, uh, which is not me, uh, but any of us who have dealt with animals, specifically horses or donkeys or anything like that, if I said to you like, oh yeah, we're gonna we're gonna go and find a donkey that's never been ridden and we're gonna ride it, and you would all be like, this is a terrible idea. <laughs> This is the worst idea. This thing's going to buck you off. Like, like what, 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 why on earth would you want to ride something that hasn't been broken and that hasn't been tamed? Um, but it bears significance for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, animals set aside for divine use in Scripture are often not yet used by people, right? So, you, you, you know, you have this unblemished heifer that's never been yoked, never plowed, never doing anything, being set aside for some task for God. There's lots of references for that. I can give them to you if you want. But even outside of the religious ritual, because Mark's audience is not just Jews, right? Mark's audience is also Romans. Um, but even outside of a maybe familiar Jewish spiritual context, the fact that no one has sat on this cult in the narrative brings honor to Jesus as the first one to sit on him. Maybe not the first place our minds would go, but it clearly does. And this is entirely a passage about honoring, highlighting, putting Jesus on full display. And so that's what Mark's doing. Get the cult, Zechariah 9.9. It needs to be unridden. This is for divine use. Jesus says its master needs it. Something else I wanted to highlight in the text that contributes to this triumphal image that Mark is painting. Um, you know, Jesus says, if anyone objects, say its master needs it. 
Contrast with the master or the Lord needs it found in a lot of other versions. Maybe your Bible says that too. Um, Both readings are acceptable from the underlying Greek text, uh, but sparing you the syntax lesson and everything, um, I think its master is the best reading, and it fits well with how the scene is developing, right? Which is um, Jesus is requisitioning this cult, which is his, as Lord and master, as a means of transportation. And it's, and it's really, it's worth pausing there to note, like the vibe of Jesus's how-to instructions to the two, to, to the, to the two disciples, which Mark doesn't name because it doesn't matter. We're focused on Jesus. Jesus's instructions to these disciples are like, hey, I want you to go and, and find someone else's property. I want you to take it, <laughs> right? Let's rephrase it. I want you to go and I want you to take their property. And if they object, which of course they're going to do, right? If they object, their response is essentially to be, it's not your, uh, you know, it's, it's master needs it. It's not your cult. It's Jesus's cult. It's master, which is not you, needs it. And we will be bringing it back, FYI. So this is, this is a big kingly, I'm requisitioning this. Jesus does not acknowledge that this even belongs to somebody. This is, at, this is my cult, right? This is my cult. And in some, in this section that we've read through, verses, uh, you know, verses 1 through 3, there are no less than five predictions, right? But we're not going to go through them in detail, but no less than five predictions that highlight Jesus' lordship and supremacy. The disciples will find a male colt. They'll find it immediately entering the village. The colt will be tied. No one's ever sat on it before. And someone's going to interject. Hey, what are you doing? And so all of this, Mark is weaving together to say, like, Jesus, Lord, and Master is coming front onto the stage, right? Let's continue in verse four. They went and found a colt tied to a gate outside on the street, and they untied it. People standing there, surprised. What are you doing untying this colt? They told him just what Jesus said, and they left it alone, and they bring the colt to Jesus. And so the disciples do as Jesus commands, and boom, everything happens, just as he said. Now, I know we're accustomed to this kind of prediction fulfillment schema in scripture, right? In the gospels, we see this happen all the time. Jesus said so-and-so would happen. Boom, so-and-so happened, right? And it happens so often that sometimes we can just glance past it without considering. But the fact that everything happens exactly as Jesus said it would is included precisely to reinforce this, this narrative, this notion of lordship. This fact that Jesus is mastering this entire, this entire process from beginning to end. The disciples obey him. He's the master. The cult does what he said it would do. He's the master. The people question, but then they listen to him. Jesus is the master. And now we've set up to this grand entry. The pit stop's done. And then we continue the narrative as Jesus begins his entry into Jerusalem. Verse 7. And they threw their clothes upon it, the cult. And he sat on it. Many people spread out their clothes on the road while others spread branches cut from the fields. Those in front of him and those following were shouting, Hosanna, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord, blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David, Hosanna in the highest. It's a big, big moment. It's a big moment. So what's going on? The disciples fashion, you know, Jesus has the cult. And the disciples fashion a saddle for Jesus to sit on out of their own clothing. I mean, imagine, they fashion a saddle out of their own clothing so, so as to honor and distinguish Jesus. Again, that's what this whole narrative is about. Ordinary pilgrims arrive on foot. They wouldn't have ridden animals in. Jesus processes in honored form like a dignitary, right? And then in the story, and for the rest of the passage, the camera pans away, in a sense, perspective-wise, from Jesus and his disciples, 
and we look at the crowd. We look at this crowd of people who, you know, heretofore in the story we, we haven't really heard much from. And, and maybe from their perspective, this story has seemed a little interesting too, right? They pull up to the pit stop. Maybe you're kind of observing from a distance. There's Jesus talking to his disciples. Oh, they left to get something. Oh, they brought back a colt. Okay, what's... Oh, okay. And people begin to pick up and realize on what's happening. They see the energy of this moment. It's all been building into this entry into Jerusalem, the anticipation, the expectation, the Passover-fueled hope that Jesus will right the wrongs in their lives and their country. This is a very tangible hope, right, for Jesus as Messiah. And so the people, the crowd with Jesus, they join the moment that Jesus and the disciples are creating, and they spread out their own clothes on the road in front of him while others cut branches from surrounding fields, creating this giant VIP red carpet that stretches from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. It's two miles as the path goes. As the crow flies, it's less than that. But as the path would go from Bethany to Bethphage to Jerusalem, two miles. A metaphorical red carpet for miles. A crowd ahead of him quite literally paving his way. A crowd processing almost regally behind him. They've set up the searchlights, the sky... Uh, in the sky. The music is playing. This is it. It's a VIP moment. Here's this carpet. This is a big grand entry. And consider, this is as far as the text is concerned, a spontaneous thing that people begin to do. Nobody, including Jesus, asks them to do this. Nobody instructs them, okay, now do the things, now cut the branches, now we need this. Nobody does that. The people respond and prepare the way for Jesus without even being told. They create this VIP experience. And in this absolutely electrified moment, we can just picture the energy building, right? You know, I, for me, the first place my mind goes is like, somebody I've really been waiting to see at a music festival, and there's like 100,000 people in the crowd, and we're all just like, yeah, you know? In this electrified moment of Jesus' procession towards Jerusalem, the crowd, again, impromptu, bursts into praise with a familiar passage from Psalm 118. Hosanna, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This was actually uh, the selection that Garrett read for us this morning. And the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on a cult was recognized to be a fulfillment of, Mark, of Zechariah 9.9. But unlike the other Gospels, like I mentioned, that he doesn't focus on this. Instead, the climax of the story in Mark is the cries of those who went with Jesus. The climax of the story in Mark is the cries of those who went with Jesus. And in this outburst of acclaim through a messianic passage from Psalm 118, Hosanna! Blessed is the Lord. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. In the midst of this acclamation every year, um, uh, every, oh, I apologize. I lost my place. Sorry. <laughs> um, so, this, so this outburst of acclaim uh, does come from a messianic passage in Psalm 118 that Mark points us to. Every year, this psalm, Psalm 118, the quote that, Mark, that uh, Garrett read, every year this psalm was recited as part of a Passover ritual, right? The multiple psalms, I think it was 112 through 118 that they read together. And the crowd believes, the point is this, the crowd in shouting this psalm believes that Jesus is the fulfillment of these words. They believe that. They're pointing to this messianic overture. Again, who is Jesus? He's been a little, there have been question marks. There have been different responses. There have been, uh, there's even been obfuscation by Jesus about his identity. And yet here, everything's on display. And it's very loud and it's very obvious. And that is the mood, right? Um, 
that is the mood. We are hoping, we're anticipating, we want this deliverance from this guy we've been following for years. For years, it's an eruption of praise in the passage. It's an eruption of praise. And, and in, Luke's, uh, in Luke's retelling of this story, um, he includes the bit that maybe we're familiar with when uh, you know, the people start shouting, they sing, they praise, they quote this and the Pharisees interject and say, teacher, silence your disciples. And what does he say? If they're silent, the rocks will cry out. If they're silent, the rocks will cry out. This is an electric moment. You can't stop it, says Jesus. You can't stop it. And what do they cry? Hosanna. Hosanna, save us, Lord. And as, and as that cry rings similar um, to Jesus, and, and that cry rings similar to Jesus' given name, Yeshua, Hoshiana is how you'd say it in, uh, in Hebrew. Hoshiana, save us, Yeshua, Jesus' name, salvation. The secret is out. Crowds of people ahead of Jesus and behind crying, Messiah, this is the day that the Lord has made. It's here. It's here. And the next line reinforces that. Not a quote. Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David, Hosanna in the highest. Not, not a direct quote from a song, but from a psalm, but a clear interpretation in case we had any questions. Do they think he's the Messiah? Definitely. Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. This is what the Messiah does, restore David's kingdom. It's a big passage. It's a big passage. There's a lot, that go, there's a lot going on. There's a lot behind the passage in terms of politics and setting and impact, right? What we discussed as far as everybody's response. And so as we consider Jesus this morning, and as we just move to a time of reflection, a little bit of application a little bit, and, and, and close down, I wanna give you a couple of encouragements. Um, number one, number one, welcome your king. Welcome your king. That's the title of the sermon. I had to pick one. That's my title. Um, maybe as, as we've gone through this passage and, and just reflected on the bigness of this moment, the, 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 the revelation of this moment, the revelation of Jesus unambiguously coming in as the Messiah, praise erupting, the celebration of it, the anticipation of it, the hope. Hope is a word that's, that's kept rolling around in my head as I've, as I've thought about the sermon. Uh, this past week, hope, the hope, and it's a tangible hope in the cries of the people, in the, in the laying out of garments and making this VIP carpet of, 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 of branches and clothes. This is the honor that Jesus deserves. This is the honor that Jesus deserves. This is the welcome he deserves. This is the celebration he deserves. It's the celebration we deserve, right? Um, it's the celebration we deserve. Jesus has come. He's with us, right? He's with us. In this text, he's with us. Uh, for any of us who choose to follow him, he said, I'm with you always. I'll give you my spirit. He's with us. And so I say this, welcome your king. This was perhaps Jesus' most, ki most kingly moment on earth before his death and resurrection. And, uh, you know, Stephanie and others have pointed out we're going into Holy Week. I want you to consider, as, as we continue to reflect, as the story moves on, because we don't stay here. We don't stay in, in the celebration of... of uh, of the triumphal entry. We don't, we don't stay here on this Monday. It was actually a Monday um, for the triumphal entry. The story moves on. But consider that this, this is the juxtaposition. This is the cast. This is the foil against which the rest of this happens. The rest of the week happens. This triumphal entry. Jesus is king, Messiah. Welcome him. Welcome him. And for some of us, 
it can be hard to hear Jesus through the noise. Through the noise, right? We're in a pandemic. Still. A country with nuclear warheads counted in the thousands is on the rampage. We feel flung back to the dark days of the Cold War before I was alive. Financial turbulence is creating insecurity worldwide. Christianity is being co-opted in our country right now and by political and religious groups for the purpose of increasing power, wealth, and influence. You know, there was noise um, back then, too, that, that all, these, all these circumstances that we find ourselves in may feel a little distant, but there was noise uh, to the text and to this grand welcome, this grand entrance of Jesus, this, 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 this procession, triumphal procession of Jesus into Jerusalem. The noise can sometimes drown it out. And while we can be excited about it in a text, sometimes we wonder, what is this? What is this? But I want to encourage you, there was noise back then too. Religious leaders, as we mentioned, felt threatened. They were politicizing. They were running smear campaigns on Jesus, etc. And yet we have Nicodemus, who we meet in John 3. He's asking Jesus questions. Hey, what are you all about? And Jesus, this is where we get the famous John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He's talking to Nicodemus, right? It's in the middle of this conversation from a religious leader saying, who are you? Who is Jesus, right? And then we see Nicodemus pop up later in a council meeting, chapters later. Such a long time, you almost forget who he is, right, in the Gospel of John. And in the council, as they're deciding what to do with Jesus, this is after the temple cleansing, after the triumphal entry, when, they're, when, they, when they basically they're trying to kill him. And as a council, they're discussing, right? Nicodemus stands up and is like, hey, I think we need to listen to this guy. That's our key, right? That's how we know. Okay, because John 3, where, where Jesus leaves Nicodemus in that story, we don't know. He, Nick, he just leaves. We don't know where, where Nicodemus, whether he received it, whether he rejected it, whatever. Now we know. Councilman, he stands up and he says, hey, I think, we should, I think we should listen to this guy. And then we see him again at the burial. Roman authorities, as we know, feared insurrection. Despite finding no wrongdoing with Jesus, they contented themselves to execute him like a criminal. But then we remember a centurion, a Roman centurion, who through that noise uh, believed Jesus and said, no, you don't even need to come heal my servant who is literally on death's door. Just speak the word. And he's healed. That's a Roman believing in Jesus. And then Joe Schmoes throughout, or Jill Schmoes throughout Jerusalem, hope in Israel, hoping riled perhaps into this messianic fever of, of, of we need this deliverance. And some of them even deceived by the religious leaders and, 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 and called into this place of eventually a week later accusing Jesus and calling for his death, right? Um, in, in a true kind of QAnon rally kangaroo court. Uh, it really was. It was trumped up charges and, and, and even in... Uh, I was talking with Pastor, uh, Pastor James about this passage on Monday, and he mentioned, yeah, you know, Pilate's court where, where they had that trial, where Jesus was put on trial, maybe held a 1,000 people. So this isn't even, so, so when, when we compare that to this scene here, this is huge crowds, this is big following, this is, this is huge stuff, to the trumped up charges a week later with a eh, small crew of people, but it was enough to get him executed, right? And so Joe Schmo, here we are in the middle, you know, you might find yourself in the middle of that narrative, uh, but then we know people like Mary Magdalene, a rescued prostitute turns devout follower till the end. And so through all this noise, through all these competing narratives, through all these perspectives, answering this question, who is Jesus, right? Is he, um, is he an insurrectionist? 
Is he, is, is he a hypocrite? Is he a false teacher? Is he somebody who deserves death for, for leading people astray? I mean, is he a conquering Messiah? These were all competing narratives surrounding Jesus. And they were the backdrop of this triumphal entry saying, I am the Messiah. We know how the story ends, and so we know he's not going to conquer Rome. But this is his very loud and clear message to the whole country. And only a week later, he dies after that loud and clear message. If you wonder why, he may have wanted to obfuscate his identity for a few years as he ministered. So I welcome you. Um, I welcome you through the noise, through the competing narratives, through what is weighing on your heart, which I cannot see into, but God does. This is my encouragement to you. Welcome your king. Welcome your king through the noise, through the distractions, through the narratives that people are pressing you to believe. People are constantly pressing us for our attention, right? And our following. People want us to follow them. People want to grow their influence, just like they did back then, just like they did in this story. And so my encouragement again, welcome Jesus into this, into this moment. Um, yeah. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us, just as you revealed yourself to this crowd. We celebrate you. We celebrate you in our lives. You've come, you've come to us, and you welcome us into your family. You welcome us to be a part of this celebration. Every single person, a thousand times a day, no matter how much we screw up, you welcome us. And so we, we come to you now, and I ask, Father, that you would help us to perceive you. Help us to perceive your worthiness of celebration, your worthiness of triumphal entry in, in, in any context, in Jerusalem, in this world, in our lives as individuals, in any context. You are worthy of this. And so I ask you, Father, please um, help us to perceive you now in this moment. Holy Spirit, as we seek to, as we seek to, 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 to follow you and to be in this family, would you help us to sift through the noise? Help us to sift through the noise. Help us to sift through the competing narratives. Help us to, to out of all the responses, welcome you for who you are. Amen.